from the early 90s when I was in my uni days got involved with a group called Urban Ecology Australia who were advocating something called an ecological city which was at the time spoken of as a city in balance with nature and also to do that you had to have the city in balance within itself so that sort of uh, alluded to the social equity issues. Um, so for a long time I was involved at a grassroots level doing work on that uh, before green cities became sexy, you know, before climate change really got on the, the agenda. Um, but one thing that I don't think was as strong at the time, which has started to come forward in the last few years, is this idea of local production in terms of fabrication. So for me, ecological cities have always been about how you generate energy locally, how you could generate uh, more of the food production locally, um, because Eco-cities are looking to you know, address the impact they have beyond their physical environment, so the draw that they have on communities and resources elsewhere. So to me, it was always about relocalisation of some production, but now the ability you know, to access, I guess, a, a way of producing through open design commons and through uh, technologies, not just digital, but all kinds of you know, ways of doing this, the emergence of the maker movement... Um, as a path to democratise production, I suppose you could say. So we don't have to, we never did back in history, but we, now we don't have to rely on, you know, remote entities, you know, big or big companies to produce everything we need. We could do more of that for ourselves. So I'm quite interested in the the local fabrication, and that's where the term cosmo-localisation comes from. So my friend and colleague, Jose Ramos, out of Melbourne, who's... Uh, uh, a uh, futures scholar talks about this side of the peer-to-peer -peer foundation, Cosmo meaning global and localisation. So it's this sort of, it is kind of think think globally but make locally I suppose. So we call it design global make local or manufacture local as well. So the idea being that, you know, instead of, um, you know, production happening in one place and shipping it in, in containers or on planes all over the planet, that you could actually share the information. So the... The idea is that the the uh, bits, you know, the, the the information will travel. Anything that's light can travel, but anything that's heavy, heavy, the atoms, they stay locally in local production. So you have a shared global design commons, and then you have uh, local production and, and manufacturing, so that you can actually, instead of importing something from somewhere else, you could make more of what you need locally. And that's not to say everything, but it's to say we could definitely. Um, you know, organise these technologies and organise our, our models to, to do more of that local production, which is what I'm interested in and what Cosmo Localisation is, uh, is talking about. What's emerging here is a, a new set of possibilities and there's this whole kind of bunch of things coming together here, as you've mentioned, like the 3D printing, you know, open design, uh, you know, the, the communication revolution. So there's a whole bunch of things coming together that can give us uh, the possibilities to to really do this in a way where you're creating a, a, a completely different ecosystem to has some ind independence, some resilience from the existing vested interests. Is that uh, is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we we have been become largely, if you look around, um, reliant on supply chains and and big systems to deliver many of our kind of day-to-day -day and, and sort of 
I guess, longer-term requirements. And we've become kind of end users of a system. We've become consumers and sometimes often passive consumers. We don't have a connection to what we make, how it's produced, where it's produced, what kinds of impacts that, that is having on those communities where that's being produced. Um, you could just look at things like textiles and the kinds of issues around, you know, where those things are being made overseas and the conditions that, that workers are experiencing there. Um, so yeah, it's but all these technologies with you know the advent of the internet and, and um, digital fabrication in particular have opened up this whole new terrain that I guess you know certainly when I was in, involved in the ecological cities movement wasn't as possible. I mean, not in, not in terms of. I mean, we've always had been producing locally, but in terms of being out to kind of um, tap into this sort of bigger possibility, that's really only happened in the last 10, 10 years or so. So, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's new territory. It's, you know, it's saying, well, could we potentially bring production back to cities? We originally had to develop a thing called zoning to separate dirty industry from where people lived. So then you end up with separating where people live and play and work um, could that all be brought back together if you've got cleaner production? Much more granular throughout the city. It's not a big centralised means of producing. Um, there's a whole bunch of... I mean, this is still so new. There's a lot of work going into how viable this is, whether it can compete with these big economies of scale of existing industry, um, what are the pros and cons. So still very new, but really interesting territory to, to explore, I think. It's, uh, particularly it's... if we're serious about addressing carbon emissions, mm. because a whole, you know, the shipping and aviation emissions are not included in the national climate change negotiations because there's too much of a, you know, apparently it's too difficult to allocate the emissions. I, I would say that's not the case. I'd just say that people don't want <laughs> to claim them. Yeah. But yeah, if we're, we're not even including that in the climate change negotiations, and that's some 17% of total emissions, I understand. So we, if we're serious about addressing climate change and also waste, you know, instead of being in a perpetual state of overproduction, what if we could produce what we needed as we needed it and made that customised instead of trying to guess what the market wants and make over-making stuff yeah. and then having to push consumption, then things go to waste. So it, it's really inverting the logic of industrial production more than anything. So it's not just about a few new whiz-bang ways of making things. Um, it is about changing a whole dynamic of how we produce things, which I find quite interesting. So you mentioned there it's it's a whole new thing, but it's it's also it's an old thing, isn't it? Like, can you just talk to, I mean, not just I guess when uh, our, our, our white culture, so to speak, our Western culture was uh, slightly more simple uh, and localized, but also to Indigenous cultures where uh, this kind of you know there's a there's a, a different logic, a different dynamic here that's at play, isn't there? Speak to that, please. Oh, for sure. And I mean, in, in Indigenous cultures, and this isn't my sort of strong field of expertise at all, but, you know, when people made things that had great meaning, they were meant to last, uh, you did have a great um, series of sophisticated trade networks, but those things were trading, you know, like things that one group had access to certain resources or ways of doing things that another didn't. And, you know, that's where your, gen your um, genuine comparative advantage in trade, you know, mm -hmm. that we, we grew to, to know in a global sense centuries later, yeah. uh, came to pass. But then now we're in this really, really bizarre territory of what they call boomerang trade, where because of these weird, um, you know, 
dynamics that, that come out of trade agreements or economics that we are actually trading like quantities of good backwards and forwards across the planet or very similar but you know not so different things so you know cultures have always made what they've needed um, before we invented cities you know we had we had indigenous cultures doing those sorts of things and trading them we made we made cities and you know we we were still producing most of what we needed globally it wasn't uh, locally it wasn't until we had access to cheap fossil fuel energy that we really kind of, I guess, began... It's the equivalent of urban sprawl, but for production. We could we could put different parts of the production process all across the world, and it kind of didn't matter. But, you know, if, if economics is supposed to be about the efficient allocation of resources, and you look around at what we're doing now, then we perhaps need a new kind of economics because uh, it's really gone quite far away from what indigenous cultures did with, you know, making things from where they were in place that had great meaning, that were built to last, yeah. no doubt, because, you know, they, they were... I didn't have the ability to buy in resources from elsewhere like we do. Yeah. So, yeah, we could look to those kind of, of um, I guess, principles and, you know, what what's sensible to produce locally, what might we need from elsewhere, uh, and, you know, actually reverse some of this kind of crazy dynamic we've had for for a long time now. Yeah. Speak, Sharon, if you would, to, I guess, well, I'm kind of interested in just getting your thoughts on dangers and, I guess, some of the criticism that comes to some of this work in the new economy and the risks that they just become part of, co-opted into the capitalist system, some criticisms that they are just, you know, another, Mm. I guess, uh, flavour of capitalism. Do you consider this work that you're doing anti-capitalist, post-capitalist? Uh, to me, I'm interested in the... Um, if it's about new a new kind of economic organisation, then I guess it might be. So this isn't just about, um, you, know, you know, there's concerns around co-option in the maker movement, you know, phrases like maker wash you start to hear now and then. You've got uh, major banks setting up 3D printing um you know, services in their branches and all that kind of stuff in the UK. You've got, you know, the, defense, you've got the defence industry. You know, so that, there's a danger... Sorry, the defence industry in the US sort of scouting around maker fairs, looking for, you know, different mm. bits of interesting tech that to the point where some of the maker fairs have actually banned, banned them. Um, but there's... Yeah, there's this... Um, how do you prevent it from being co-opted? I think, you know... The powers that be, if they see something valuable, will always look to do that. And so this is where who owns it becomes important. So to me, cosmolocalisation isn't just about relocalising the material production, it's about how that ownership is structured. So, you know, if you've got... I mean, one example I read was Adidas are bringing back production of boots from China to Germany for the first time in 20 years, but the jobs aren't coming back because robots will be building the boots. Mm. So if you are in a an economic framework that's seeking to you know, divest itself of labour, and in some cases we might want to get rid of dirty, dangerous, repetitive, you know, mm. low-paid jobs, but then what happens to all those people? You know, do we need a different social contract negotiated? I would say yes, um, because while there might be some jobs for people who design and make and maintain robots. You know, and there might be other jobs emerging out of these industries, like when we've lost, um, you know, chimney sweeps in the past because we had electric light. There were new industries that, that, that emerged there, so it's very difficult to say. But we do need to look at ownership. We do need to look at, um, 
you know, who's controlling these processes? And that's why the sort of second part of, of what I'm interested in with Audacities is, you know, we can relocalise production, but just dealing with the materials isn't enough. We've got to look at the cultural uh, context in which things are being produced and who has access to that and who's controlling it, because otherwise we will end up, to my mind, you know, duplicating the the very kind of um, economic relationships that we're trying to perhaps move away from. Commons as our North Star, Professor Yochai Benkler would say. I think so. I mean, I think, you know, this idea of living in a, in a um, living somewhere where everything's a transaction's a bit soul-destroying, really. And so, you know, we've, we've got research now coming out from places like the Peer-to-Peer Foundation showing the pathway forward to addressing this social inequality and addressing our concerns around climate change is in the mutualisation of resources so and, and productive space is a part of that as well so where do you go to make things you know where do you go to repair things how do you uh, find people who know different things than you do so in these spaces like maker spaces and fab labs and it's not just about the equipment people come for that but they're actually staying to learn how to do do things differently and to learn skills and techniques and blend ideas and it really is kind of a hardware co-working environment in a real sense but you know where people are act- actively exchanging ideas and knowledge and and how to and so I think the commons it's about that social connection as well and about having a shared resource that's you know um, governed by all those who have an interest in it so I think uh, we need to find better ways to respond to what is emerging with commons based production and that can be material stuff like what might come out of a makerspace things like AbilityMate who are doing open source assistive tech hardware and there's also things like I, a Facebook page I started here in Adelaide called Lost Dogs of Adelaide so it's now all citizen run it's 70,000 people following this page in a city of 1 million mm-hmm. and it's a service to reunite lost pets with owners so that's a commons because it's outside market and it's outside the state. It's being run on a, on a proprietary platform called Facebook that we don't own <laughs> but, mm-hmm. um, but yeah it's being all, I just think it's a really interesting case study of how you can actually organise and People can do things for themselves, and yeah. one of the things I'm, I'm quite interested in this is the idea of the partner state. So, as we see more citizens saying we care about this, we've got the tools and technology we didn't have even 10 years ago to self-organise and, and do do this at a larger scale than maybe what would have been possible before. That how do governments respond to that? How how do governments um, learn to work with communities instead of doing to or for them? So the, the communities are now becoming more active. Um, it's more of a, an active democracy, if you like, rather than a one where we turn up to a, a popularity contest we call, call an election every few years and tick a box. So how do, how do governments deal with that is, is an interesting question for me as well. Beautiful. Thanks, Sharon, so much. That's awesome. Can you, you direct our listeners, please, where they might uh, follow you or follow important things in this emerging space? Sure. Um, if you go to the website Audacities, that's A-U-D-A, and the word cities, audacities.co, C-O, not .com, .co, um, you'll find me collecting information, uh, you know, um, and, and a bit more about all of these ideas from myself and from other colleagues we are working in this space at the moment. So I'm sort of like, how can we 
um, collect the expertise in this country on this and help policymakers and help demystify this idea of of design global manufacture local so that it's understood. So um, that's that's the purpose of Audacities at the moment and you can go there and find out more and a whole bunch of stuff on the social media channels related to it which uh, will give you insights into what's going on in Australia and also overseas.